BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And that decision can't be manipulated by anyone because right now it's being manipulated by police chiefs. They get to choose, you know, which officers they want to see get in trouble, which ones they don't, who they want to, you know, be lenient on and who they don't. And I don't think they should have that ability. Welcome to Stand Up, Speak Up, a Canadian-made podcast highlighting important social issues and giving a voice to remarkable people. I'm your guest host, Matt Kundal. This week, Kelly Donovan. She is the Fit for Duty founder and president and police officer for five years when she witnessed corruption within her police service when conducting internal investigations. In May 2016, Kelly addressed her police services board since they are the oversight body responsible for the effective management of the police service. The issues Kelly addressed were not objectively or impartially investigated, and she became the subject of the very corrupt internal investigation process she had originally addressed. Over the next 14 months, Kelly contacted every government agency responsible for police oversight to draw attention to the reprisals she was now facing, and no agency was willing to intervene. Kelly resigned from policing after facing a protracted and corrupt discipline hearing that would have had lasting effects on her career. She released a report to the media detailing the corruption in policing and later published her first book. Kelly's passion to do what's right resulted in the creation of Fit for Duty. Kelly's goal is to provide Canadian workplaces a safe reporting mechanism to detect workplace misconduct early, protect those making disclosures, and ensure independence during the investigation process. Carla Stevens-Tolstoy spoke to Kelly Donovan to hear her story. And I'm a former Waterloo Regional Police Officer. I'm now the president and founder of Fit for Duty, the ethical standard, which I'm hoping to um, provide services to employers to raise the ethical standard of workplaces in Canada. When did you decide to become a police officer? What was the impetus to, to do that? So my ex and I were going through a separation in 2009. He was a police officer at the time and I was not. And we found ourselves in an abusive relationship. It was mostly verbal, financial, psychological. But when it turned physical, when he put his hands on me, I had to involve the police service where we lived at the time. And I watched how that police service handled my complaint and eventually went through freedom of information and obtained all the officer's notes and reports. And that was my first exposure to the power that police have when an allegation is made against one of their own. Um, the power that they have to proceed, not proceed, um, regardless of any legislation that says they shall proceed or shall arrest, um, they really can do whatever they want. So nothing did happen in that case. Going forward, during our separation, I knew that I needed a better paying job. I was now the single mother of three kids, and the job I had at the bank was not going to be enough to pay the bills. So that's when I started thinking about a new career, and policing to me seemed like a logical next step. After having witnessed how unethical some police officers can be, I really started thinking that people like myself should get into the profession because they need more people that have high integrity, that can be honest and objective, regardless of the circumstance, whether it's an allegation made against a colleague or a member of the public. So I took the steps necessary to complete my fitness test, get my certificate and start applying. So it was in December of 2010 that I was hired with Waterloo Regional Police. Do you think that being a police officer turned him into a different person? When you guys first met, was he very different from the man that you divorced? Um, my situation is probably pretty unique. I, I can't say that the job changed him, but in my case, when we first met and started dating, it was during a time in my life that I was dealing with a lot at home. My mom was dying with cancer and he was my support. So I, looking back, I don't think... I took the time I should have to really get to know him because I was so vulnerable. So I did learn a lot about him at the end of our relationship that I didn't know in the beginning, but I don't think it was the job that changed him. I think it was just my inability to clearly see what I was getting into at the time. He, you know, he had experiences throughout his job that were traumatic experiences that 
neither he dealt with nor his employer. You know, there was one time where our daughter had just been born, or sorry, she was two years old and I was pregnant with our third child. And he had a call where he had to basically revive a two-year-old girl who was vital signs absent. He performed CPR. And that evening, you know, she did survive, but that evening he didn't come home. He went out drinking with his platoon mates after shift. And then when he did come home in the morning, he smelled like alcohol. You know, I knew he had been out all night. He didn't tell me where he'd been, didn't tell me about the incident or anything. And it wasn't until two days later that I saw his picture on the on the cover of our local newspaper saying that he had saved this little girl. But I was not aware at all. He hadn't told me and nobody from the service had called me just to say, you know, he might be shaken up. This might have been a traumatic incident for him. So that to me was my first experience with how little they really pay attention to their people's mental health. Because he never dealt with that. He It was just something that he suppressed. And I could tell that it was, you know, perhaps not that particular incident, but a collection of incidents was weighing on him, you know, just in his anger at home. And now that I know the signs of PTSD, I would say he was probably struggling with PTSD and never had anyone at work that he could talk to or nobody there that could recognize the signs. What are the chances of a police officer getting divorced? Um, I think the statistics would say it's higher than the average population. I think the population and percentage is about 60%. I would say, you know, in my experience, I think there's far more marriages that fail than succeed. I think it's extremely difficult to have a marriage succeed in a profession like this where they're both not police officers. What what would be the benefits of both being cops? Because wouldn't each other be so traumatized that you just wouldn't share as much or shut down? No, I, I think there's just... Um, a better understanding. For instance, I'll tell you with my ex, he used to tell me that he wasn't allowed to tell me things that happened at work. So he was using his oath of secrecy that he had sworn. And he was telling me, you know, I can't tell you about the incidents that happened at work. I can't tell you about the calls. But he he was misinterpreting that because it wasn't that he had to come home at the end of the day and tell me, you know, the people's names that he had arrested and the people's names of their homes that he had visited. It was more that I wanted him to share with me that the calls that he had, you know, how they would affect him, the kinds of things that he was having to deal with so that I could support him. But but he had interpreted it as I can't tell you anything from work. So he never involved me in anything. I never knew what was going on. Do so, they, you know, so if he came home at the end of the day and was just miserable with me, I took it personally and yeah. I didn't, you know, I had no context to understand what he had had to deal with that day. So I think, you know, if you are a police officer, there's a better understanding or just even first responders. I, I think they tend to to get together in marriage and stay married longer than, you know, one who's not because you just understand it a bit more. And you know that if the person's a bit short with you, that's probably because they had a, a shitty day and, you know, they're dealing with something. So then you can talk about it. In your experience, if we go through all the areas, so divorce, so as you said, that it's really hard in relationships. What about addiction issues, drugs, alcohol, gambling? I, again, I don't know the exact number, but I know that it's a tendency related to PTSD. So a lot of people struggling with PTSD will develop addictions to certain things because it's, it's filling a void that's there with, with the mental health. And so what, someone what, just banged my door. Oh, what about, okay, so like there's addictions, there's um, being promiscuous. I mean, that comes up quite often. Is that a myth or do you No, believe- so that, that would be, a, that's actually a known symptom of PTSD. It's that, like, it's the need for instant gratification. So whether it's, you know, becoming promiscuous and it's, you know, constantly being desired by women, you know, whatever the case is, there's men that dealing with PTSD will go, you know, it's whatever it is, whether it's gambling or it's like a sex addiction or addiction. It's um, it's just filling that void, that need to be desired. And what about the suicide rate? It kind of ties in with the corruption aspect of it is, you know, now that I know, you know, all of the aspects of PTSD, it's not only those officers that have dealt with an extreme number of traumatic calls that will suffer from PTSD and could commit suicide. It's it's a culmination of so many different factors. So some people, you know, you have some people that are dealing with mental health symptoms. They try to go off on a leave because they feel like they've reached their breaking point. And there's some people that are just, it's just the bureaucracy of the entire process that pushes them over the edge. You know, some people are put under operational stress because they're disciplined for things that, you know, really are just symptoms of their PTSD. 
So some in some cases, it is people that are haunted by the traumatic calls on the road. And then there's other people that it's just everything else piled on top of them. It's their fear of not being able to support their family. It could be fear of pending discipline. You know, there's so many things that that push people over the edge where they just feel like there's no there's no turning back. Like, I feel like right now is the worst time to be a police officer. I feel like the public and the community are particularly hard on officers. If they're not exactly perfect, then they just get cremated. I mean, do you feel that almost with police officers like a witch hunt? Yeah, I think it's really hard because I think of my own experience. You know, in the six years that I was a police officer, I would like to think that I was, you know, extremely ethical, extremely honest. I did my best job. You know, I, I never, I was always hesitant to use force and I was criticized for it by some of my colleagues. But, you know, I always tried to do everything I could possibly do before I had to use force. Or I always tried to verbalize it to the person before I had to use force. You know, all those things. Because I knew that the conduct of some police officers were giving all of us a bad name. But it, but to me, that was unfair because I wasn't one of them. So it's hard because you get painted with the same brush as everyone else. And there are a lot of cops out there that make poor decisions that, you know, get recorded on YouTube or, or get charged with whatever. And then it reflects poorly on everybody. But, you, you know, you don't have politicians standing up for you. You don't have your own chief standing up for you sometimes. You know, your chief wants to please the media and wants to please the board and is ready to turn his back on you at, at the opportunity to please them. Like, I would be scared to be a police officer right now. I feel like a lynching mob would come after me. I feel like everybody was watching me to fail. And then I don't yes. think people understand that criminals don't have to follow any rules or ethics. And so when you're trying to catch a criminal and you're trying to do it so correctly, sometimes that's not the best way to get the criminal. Yeah, well, and I think what's going to happen is, you know, you have these guys that up until now in their careers would go to any lengths to get, you know, to catch the bad guy. Um, and we're, we're coming into a time now where it's almost encouraged that at times we let the bad guy go. And a good instance of that is, you know, with the high risk of, what is it, high speed vehicle chases. You know, if if somebody escapes a robbery and they're getting away in a getaway car and we have to exceed the speed limit to get them and, you know, it's getting into a neighborhood that's dangerous, we're told to back off and let them go, which, you know, when you look at the statistics, it makes sense because too many people are getting killed and injured as a result of police chases, but it's not the conduct of the police, it's the conduct of the criminal, but we never point our finger in the right direction. So, you know, there's times like that where it's really difficult for a police officer to back off and let that guy go, but that's what we're being told to do. Damned if you do and damned if you don't. Well, if you're dealing with someone that's broken the law, but you don't feel it's so serious, or you feel like it's, you know, it's not worth putting them into the system because it could maybe not be the right decision. How flexible were you with that thinking? Or did you feel like you needed to always follow to the letter of the law? I had a bit of a different take on that because police officers have so much discretion and yeah. that almost scares me a little, especially because I've been on the inside and I've seen the way it's used. For me, I always tried to, in, in an attempt to eliminate my implicit bias, I always would set guidelines. So for instance, if I was going out one night to do impaired driving enforcement and I was going to pull over cars and check the sobriety of the driver, I would tell myself that if I had the belief that they were impaired, I was arresting no matter what. So I eliminated the risk of me stopping somebody that might have been friendly and might have you know, cried because they were upset because they've never had any interaction with police. You know, I tried to eliminate my ability to be manipulated by just saying I would arrest everybody that I found found that night to be impaired. You know, same with speeding. I would say anybody I catch doing 30 over the speed limit is going to get a ticket. What about five? What about five over the speed limit? Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't even bother with that. I mean, I would always set my limits. And then anybody over that limit, I would pull over because otherwise you find yourself you know, you find yourself seeing a car go by where the driver looks, you know, you might think the driver looks quote unquote sketchy and you'd think, oh, I want to pull them over because there might be something else. But then I'd remind myself, you know, where is that coming from? Why do I think that person looks sketchy? What is it about my implicit bias that's making me want to pull them over? So I would I would just set a guideline. I put right in my notebook that on today's date for my speed enforcement, I'm going to pull anybody over that's doing 25 over. You know, I'd set my limit in the morning. And then everybody I caught doing that, you know, if I could safely pull out and get them, I would. And I would tell myself if they're doing, you know, 30 over, they're definitely getting a ticket. Maybe 20 over, I'm going to use discretion. But I'd have it 
in my notebook established in the morning so that there could never there couldn't be any bias on who I'm pulling over and who I'm ticketing. And would that be the same as somebody that's that's dealing drugs or I mean what what would be your your criteria for taking somebody off the street let's say somebody that looks suspicious? Well, I I mean I think times have changed now especially with the new carding regulation but it's not as easy as as just looking at somebody and saying they look suspicious. I mean there'd have to be something. So if you're on the road you'd have to see two people talking to each other in some kind of a hand-to-hand exchange that makes you think that they just exchanged drugs. I mean, there'd have to be evidence that there was drugs involved for you to go up and start a drug investigation. So it's not just as easy as you pointing your finger at someone and saying, you look like someone that might have drugs on you, I'm going to search you. You know, we have a lot of requirements that we have to meet in order to do that. And I know this is happening in other cities. I can't speak for other officers in other cities, but I personally was never an officer to just point my finger, say, I, I suspect that you're doing this and initiate an investigation. Well, what about, you know, like some of the personal stories you shared with me that a police officer, perhaps their girlfriend breaks up with them and the police officer stalks them? About fourth year of service, I was promoted to a use of force trainer and working out of headquarters where I taught other officers firearms, taser and defensive tactics. So it was all the use of force with their annual requalifications and new recruit training. And it was at that time, I don't know if it was being at headquarters or if it was just having more interaction with other officers, but I started getting exposed to more detail about how the service conducts internal investigations. So there's been one case where an officer had been off on suspension for about two years at the time. He had been charged with sexual assault and a couple other things. And his case was going to, to court, going to trial because he had pled not guilty. Um, the media covered it pretty extensively. But at the end of the hearing, I mean, I had heard some rumors about this guy, but most people didn't like him. And most people thought he was just a troublemaker. And, and I didn't know if that was based on who he was or just what was being said about him. So the final article that wrapped up after his hearing said that he'd been acquitted And it wasn't just that he'd been acquitted. It was the article said that a judge emphatically acquitted him and was questioning the integrity of the investigation. And I know that shortly after, I don't know if it was that article or another one, he filed a lawsuit against the service for negligent investigation. So I really started thinking, you know, I I already know the cost to do an investigation of that scale, you know, committing the investigators to work the case all the people that would get interviewed, all the evidence that would be collected. But then to have that case go to a criminal trial that lasted eight days, I mean, that is a huge expense to the taxpayer. But then to see that he's emphatically acquitted. I mean, if he was a civilian, you know, if you have a case that goes in front of a, a judge and it lasts eight days in criminal court and then you're acquitted, I mean, there's there would be huge repercussions for the police service. So I wasn't surprised that he was suing them, but it obviously made me think, you know, are we not conducting these investigations to a high standard of quality? You know, <laughs> so that's when I started asking more questions. I reached out to the officer himself and I said, you know, what's the deal? Why why was your investigation done so poorly? And then he started giving me some information. So this was just a personal call that I made to him outside of work hours. But I learned from him that the service had appointed his ex-wife's supervisor as the lead investigator So what had happened was a girl that he'd been dating um, came forward and made historical allegations, like said, this happened months ago. Um, And when they caught wind of the allegations, the service right away picked it up, said, we're going to do something about this. So the, the entire case was built on her word. She had not presented any evidence. She had just said, this is what happened to me. And I mean, if you talk to any sexual assault victims who are civilians, you know, when they walk into a police service and say, this person did this to me, I want them charged, they're going to tell you that, you know, it's extremely difficult to first of all, have the accused charged in the first place, but second of all, to actually have it go to trial and attempt to get a conviction. I mean, that would, the article by Robin Doolittle in the Globe and Mail, all about the unfounded sexual assault rate, was all about how few cases actually make it to court and how few people are actually held accountable for their actions. But in this case, you have a civilian walking into a police service saying, this police officer did this to me. It was not the SIU that took over the case, which it should have been according to legislation. It was the service itself. And the service just took the, the victim's word and arrested him. So that was part of the judge's criticisms. As the judge was saying, you know, as the trial progressed, the the key witness and victim proved to be not credible. You know, parts of her story weren't matching up. 
But the judge basically said, you know, if this was a regular case, it wouldn't have made it this far. So knowing that they appointed an investigator who is probably biased right off the bat because everybody talks on their platoon. So if his ex-wife was working under this supervisor, they would have had many conversations about the ex and, you know, I'm sure they weren't favorable for him, but she's the one overseeing the investigation. So that was part of his issue is why would she be appointed? There's an obvious conflict with that. Um, But second of all, just how did the case get to where it got to? Because you know that it shouldn't it shouldn't happen if it was a civilian that wouldn't happen and there is a, i'm not saying that it shouldn't happen to a civilian i'm just saying we should not be investigating officers differently than we do civilians but his case was pending his lawsuit was pending um in the meantime they arrested a sergeant who had been on i think 22 or 23 years at the time but they arrested him on domestic related charges most of these charges end up being domestic related Um, But with that sergeant, same kind of thing, right? They gross it up in the media. It looks like a homicide investigation. So I reached out to him by phone again in my off-duty time, met with him for coffee and learned about his case. And there were so many aspects of his case that were even worse than the first one. Um, The person that was accusing him was also a police officer. She also worked at the same service. Um, she She had cheated on him two years prior to him being arrested he had discovered that she was cheating on him and, and the relationship had ended. But here we are two years later, she's making allegations against him that go back to the time when they broke up and they arrested him on everything that she told them. And it wasn't until they arrested him that they took his cell phone so they could analyze what was on his cell phone. And in the end, a lot of the evidence they obtained on his cell phone actually contradicted what she had told them when she initially made the report. But they didn't change anything in the investigation. They just kept going full steam ahead to try to get him. What would motivate them to get him? Because you'd think they would pick the male, not the female, to believe. So, what? No, it's just, see, and that's the thing. It's not a gender thing. It's just, it's just what they want. So, I mean, in this case, he didn't know what the motivation was, right? He, he's always someone that had been outspoken in his career. So he didn't know if maybe they just didn't like him because he wasn't the kind of person to just go along with what he's told. He'd always question you know, question what they're doing and is it really what's right? He wouldn't just take his orders and, and do what he's told, which that's what they like. That, that Those are the kind of people they want to see get promoted. Um, but with this particular officer, he still wasn't sure what the motivation was. Now, as his case went on, he started hearing things from other officers at the service. In particular, one of the rumors was that the female victim, who's an officer who came forward, there was a rumor that someone had pulled over one of the deputy chiefs and that she had been in the passenger seat of his vehicle. So someone was talking about how there might be some, there might be a personal relationship between her and this deputy chief. And then as things went on, he learned that it was that particular deputy chief that made the decision to have him arrested because anytime there's an allegation made, there's a meeting of senior leaders before any decisions are made. So at that closed door meeting, it was that particular deputy chief who made the decision to arrest him. So he's trying to piece the the puzzle together to find out, you know, how did this happen? How did I get arrested? Um, and that's just part of it. But with his case, you know, so I had this first case that was questionable. I had this case that was even more questionable. There was a witness involved in this case who had resigned from being a police officer before this case happened. And he was finding out that the reason that person resigned was because he had made threats against someone else a female and instead of arresting him they just worked out a deal where he would resign quietly but now he was part of this case against this officer so there's so many aspects to this that in my mind it was just it it, none of it made any sense that we would go about it in the way that we were going about it there was in the middle of all this I had a friend approach me who was not a police officer but she had been in an affair with a married officer from my service who I didn't know he worked at another division, but everything that she was telling me about him, I knew that he was criminally harassing her. So they had had, they'd been in an affair and then she had ended it. And up to four months later, he was still sending her repeated text messages. He was parking outside of her house. At one point she told me that he had broken into her house through the main floor window to leave her a gift on her bed. So she had hired a locksmith to put locks on all her main floor windows Everything she was telling me, I knew that this was criminal harassment. Um, I took all the evidence that she had provided me and I reported it to my supervisor because I do have a duty to report those kinds of things. And with that investigation, 
it went up through my chain of command to domestic violence. And then I was told that they're not going to proceed with the investigation because my friend, the civilian, didn't want to provide any further information, which completely violated service policy because it says you don't have to have victim cooperation to proceed in a domestic matter. You know, if there's evidence there, there's a mandatory charge policy, they shall arrest the individual. Um, But in this case, they just said she won't cooperate, so we're not going to proceed. Did you follow up with her and ask why she wouldn't cooperate? Yeah, and you know what? She she told me a, a bunch of different things. Part of it was she was trying to get hired at the time as a police officer. She was going through the testing protocol. She was worried that if she participated in this case that it would hurt her chances. And, you know, I told her the complete opposite. I said the fact that you'd be coming forward in something like this would actually help your chances because you're showing that you have the ability to hold people accountable when they do something wrong. But is that Um, true? Do you actually believe that would have helped her? I do. Yes. So I think, I think saying, you know, denying that it happened and not participating. I, I mean, to me, that's not the conduct of a police officer. You have to be willing to do those, you know, make those difficult calls. Well, did she get hired? No, she completely went on a different career path after all this. And you know what? We don't even speak anymore. So I mean, at the time, that was part of her fear. The other fear was that she knew that he was working undercover. He doesn't wear a uniform and he drives unmarked vehicles. So he'd already been driving by her house. Um, At one point, he parked outside of her daughter's house or sorry, her daughter's school in the middle of the day. And he would text her, you know, I'm outside your daughter's school. So I knew she was fearful for her safety and her daughter's safety. So she did not want to do anything that could aggravate the situation that could make it worse. And that was part of what I told the the investigator when he called me, as I said, you know, you know, she has a fear for her safety because she, she knows that he already has eyes on her all the time. So that's obviously part of the reason why she doesn't want to cooperate because she doesn't want to see him get charged. Your big focus is to have the police be, they get put under the same scrutiny. So do you believe right now that police don't get put under fair scrutiny or, or what do you think needs to happen? I think the control needs to be taken away from certain people. I think, I mean, when you think about it, there needs to be a right and a wrong. And that decision can't be manipulated by anyone. Because right now, it's being manipulated by police chiefs. They get to choose, you know, which officers they want to see get in trouble, which ones they don't, who they want to, like, you know, be lenient on and who they don't. And I don't think they should have that ability, especially when it involves a criminal matter. And, you know, in my case, I have people that I don't believe committed criminal offenses because I was privy to enough evidence to know that. Um, There's others who committed criminal offenses clearly and nothing happened with them. So for a police chief, do do all the cases get put into a big computer system and then he goes through it and sees which ones are police officers against police officers and then he gives it to a a special investigations unit? Like how should it work and how does it work? Um, I'm pretty sure, I think the policy says that if an allegation is made about a member, so from the first time somebody says, I think this police officer did this, then it it would be the chief that would have to decide on how to proceed. So if it's an internal matter, the chief would then order internal affairs to do an investigation or appoint investigators to do a criminal investigation, but it's all directed by the chief. And no one else even really knows that an allegation was made. And sometimes it can be something internal that the chief turns into an investigation, even when a member of the public has not made a complaint. The chief has all of the control and there's nobody that can question the chief's decision. The only way, if you're unhappy with the decision made by the chief, your only recourse is civil litigation. So now we have the taxpayers paying for the mistakes that our chiefs have made. And the worst thing is, is we have, we have city politicians that are you know, to a certain extent, colluding with the chiefs because they're all on the police service board together. And there's a very friendly relationship that happens between them, even though members of the police service board are supposed to act impartially. It's very difficult to find a police service board that is strictly impartial, that doesn't have a relationship with the chief outside of the police service board, you know, and and looks at things objectively. What are the type of officers that get promoted? What would be a profile of an officer that would rise the ranks? You just have to do what you're told and never question authority. I could have done that. I could have looked at the decisions that were made by superior officers to myself, and I could have said, I don't understand how they made their decision, 
but I won't question it. You know, I could have said, I won't question your authority. I'll just go along with it. It was my moral compass telling me how wrong it was that they were doing what they were doing. You know, and as police officers, when we're told that it's our job to uphold the law, it doesn't give us the right to bend it. And it doesn't give us the right to choose. We're going to enforce the laws against this person here, but not this person here, because it was becoming evident to me that some people were just going to be untouchable and some people were going to be used as examples. So who would be a typical untouchable profile? Who would be someone that would just be, be impossible well, to go you, up against? If you pay attention to the allegations made in the class action lawsuit right now, there's quite a few people. So there was a superintendent who was known to have committed certain things while, while on the job, and nothing ever happened with him. So I would consider him to be somebody that was untouchable. He, he was somebody who was, you know, he was considered a, a member of the senior leadership team and well-respected, I suppose, by his peers, those of his age category that have been around as long as him. Um, you also have a deputy chief who, you know, people had heard rumors about things that he had done in his past, but these are things that, you know, an officer today would get in trouble for, but he never did get in trouble. So, you know, being caught having an affair with a married woman and getting chased down the road by the husband in your underwear, you know, and getting picked up by an officer in a cruiser to get him out of there before a member of the public saw him. These are rumors, but these are things that when you talk to enough people, you know that they can be substantiated. But the people that control the information are the ones that have always controlled it. You know, so the chief right now is denying that that ever happened and the evidence wasn't admitted into the class action lawsuit. So we'll never know if that ever happened. And they have the ability to make these notebooks disappear. So it doesn't matter if there is a record of any of these things happening. They just destroy the records so that no one ever knows it did. What, what about police officers assaulting other police officers sexually? I mean, you do hear a lot of that. The yeah, rumors well, that's, of that that's happening. Yeah, class action. I'm also, I've been also attending the Human Rights Tribunal for two female officers in Toronto. And again, it's them saying that these things happened to me. And then you have the male officers who, and and most of them are all retired, you know, so these are very well paid senior members of the police service who had these allegations made against them. And, you know, they have the right to retire with a full pension. You know, they're going to retire wealthy and these women are fighting just to have their rights upheld in this human rights tribunal. And all these men continue to do is just deny, deny, deny. And everybody within the service will support them and deny that it's ever happened because of that culture of fear, right? Nobody wants to speak up. Well, you know, Carla, as we've heard so far, it seems that being a police officer is more than just a difficult job. It's just loaded with all sorts of crazy corruption. And a lot of things that we've just heard are quite unimaginable. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about, and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, We created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We wanted to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon.
I mean, I think it starts with the culture and the leadership at the top. Probably only 1% of police officers are, you know, psychopaths or sociopaths. That's the same with, with everyday people. But I think that they do see just such a shitty, shitty stuff all the time that I think they just get completely demoralized, I think, and start to not see people in a positive light. They just see the, the negative of everyone. And I think that just I think that's like part of the job. Do you find it a little ironic that she got into policing to fix it and now she's getting out to fix it? Yeah, she got in at your right to fix it. And then I think she realized what she was up against. I mean, I can't imagine going up against the police. I can't imagine. Like, I I don't know if I'd ever want to do that because I'd be so afraid of what they could do to me. Because I think that they will do whatever it takes to protect themselves. And I think that's really scary. I mean, for any situation that I've come up against where the police have not acted appropriately, I have never taken it to anyone because I'm afraid of the backlash. And what police officers have to see is, you know, fairly unimaginable and, and really tragic because, uh, you know, what you see at night and then what you see going on and then you have to bring it home. And, you know, according to criminology careers expert uh, Timothy Rufa, the majority of officers are very well aware of the high ethical standard that they're held to. And they want very much to uphold the public trust. And Yeah, especially because I think that now there's so much attention put on bad officers. And I think one of the things that Kelly and her story and my experience is working with good police and police that I think do not follow the the ethical standards they should was a design we put in our store that just shows, you know, a cop as he descends into becoming the criminal he's supposed to go after. And as I said, I don't think that happens to every police officer. I think it happens to a few, but I also do think the police culture itself starts to see things in more of a negative light than the everyday person. You know, like I'll I'll give you, for instance, you know, now that I know about human trafficking and I know about um, all the issues and, and, and the stuff that goes with human trafficking, I feel like my entire worldview has changed. Like when I go to the grocery store, I look around in the grocery store for even like people that could be clients of underage girls that are being trafficked. Like, I feel like everything has changed for me. When I see, like, a typical average-looking guy, I question in my head, are they the type of guy that would go after an underage girl? Because somebody has to be, or there wouldn't be so so many, and human trafficking wouldn't be a billion-dollar industry. So imagine being a cop. I feel like a cop would just look at every single person as a potential criminal. How tough was it to come up with a design that wasn't going to come off being, you know, like an anti-police message? I think really hard, and I'm still afraid that it comes across like that, and that's not my intention or our intention, because I know there's a lot of police officers that work really hard. I also know that police officers don't get the support they need. They don't get the the, the counseling and the mental health support. Police officers suffer from a lot of addiction issues. Everybody wants to keep it kind of on the on the a low profile nobody wants to talk about it i mean b- being a police officer just requires so much secrecy that i actually feel compassion and empathy for police officers that just can't be free so i, I was afraid that this would come across like that but i also think that it needs to be a discussion and i think that people need to recognize that police officers are just people and they're people that have been exposed to way too much crappy things in order to not be affected by it well credit goes to the artist uh, jordan boma has just made a design that i think really does capture the spirit that you know the policeman is your friend and you can still feel that way with this uh with this design you know just be aware just be aware that you can't put them as on a pedestal don't put them on a pedestal treat them with respect but don't assume it's your knight in shining armor that's like not the case Thanks, Carla. The design is at StandUpSpeakUpApparel.com. Now more of Carla's conversation with Kelly Donovan. Did you ever be in an uncomfortable position with the male officer? No, and I think it's partly because of my experience. I came into policing knowing the way it was. Um, I came into policing as a single mother, and I never had the intention of, of being 
you know, social and, and dating anyone from work. I, I guess, you know, I had people tell me sometimes I was cold and it, it was like I had a chip on my shoulder, but I just wasn't interested in being social. So I didn't, you know, I, I didn't go to parties after work. Um, I, I kept my, so my personal life and my professional life very separate. So I did, I had comments made that I felt were inappropriate for a professional workplace. Like what type of comment would you have somebody said to you? Uh, well, as recently as my last couple months of work, it was sitting in the office and it's a small office. I mean, it was five or six people in there at a time, but mm-hmm. hearing these guys talk about a woman that they saw the previous day during training with, you know, her, her tits hanging out and her cleavage in his face. And he just wanted to bury her head in her tits and shake it back and forth. And like, Ooh, you know, <laughs> stuff that, you know, you, you know, it's, it's locker room talk, but you're sitting there thinking, I'm in a professional environment. This is my office. You know, if this person worked anywhere else, this would not be tolerated. But here, you know, you get people saying, well, this is the job. You know, you knew what you were getting into. It's a male-dominated workplace. You know, you just have to get used to it. But it's those kinds of things that you think, you know, I don't want to hear about what you think about the woman's tits that you saw yesterday in training. I just don't. And you think, you know, women just aren't like that. But if we were, I'm pretty sure the men would think it was tasteless, you know, and have just as much of an issue with it if if we sat here degrading men all the time. Did you ever have any colleagues that experienced it that came to you? Um, not till after the class action was launched. I mean, it was honestly before then. It, it did. You, you didn't feel like you could really talk about anything. Um, I had. I did have a supervisor once make me feel very, very little. Um, I there was a day at work where I I did something that in my mind it was just something that had to be done. It was a day where we were short staffed and there was a lot going on. And I came up with a solution to to help the workload for everybody. And I, I didn't run it by my boss. I just kind of took the reins and started this initiative. And it cleared off a whole bunch of calls within a couple minutes. And I communicated with dispatch. They knew what I was doing. But then after the shift, he called me in and he sat me down and said, he said, you know, that thing you did today, did you come up with that all on your own? And I just remember thinking, you know, I, I think I did respond something like I did, you know, it, it wasn't someone else that gave me the idea. Like, you know, why would you think that? And he said something along the lines of it. He's never seen a girl come up with an idea that was that effective. You know, something along the lines of it's not expected that a woman would do something that was intelligent and effective. Like, I just I just remember being left with the thought of, like, why would it be about my gender? If I was a man and I did what I did, you wouldn't have any questions. But you're questioning me because I'm female and I did the same thing that you would expect any of your officers to do, which is help out. I, I suppose that women aren't necessarily brought into this professional or into this profession to be equals to the men and and they're not expected to contribute an equal effort. And when you are, it's it's a surprise. <laughs> and when you came out as a an advocate and as a whistleblower, how many women came forward with stories of abuses? So during the time that I was struggling with all this information and not knowing what to do. When I researched my options on how to come forward and how to address these things, I really, I learned that there was really nothing I could do. You know, my service made sure that I wasn't allowed to complain through internal channels. Um, The government doesn't allow police to make complaints about an officer at their own service. So the only thing that I could lawfully do was make a presentation to my police service board, just like any other member of the public. And since they are responsible for the effective management of the service, I thought that's probably the best place for me to go. So I presented a delegation to the board in May of 2016, and I explained everything to them that I knew that I had learned outside of work. And I made sure that I observed enough real evidence to know that what I was being told was true. Um, I wasn't going to risk my my career just on these officers' words. But after my delegation I immediately faced discipline, so I was ordered not to train anymore, so they took me out of my job as a training officer, which meant that they had to take someone off the road to replace me, so there was one less officer working on the road. Um, I was ordered to not have any more communication with the board, because my chief obviously didn't want me to tell them anything else that I knew, and I was facing eight Police Service Act charges, which could have resulted in my termination. So I knew that following what I did, they they wanted my job. They were going to go after my job and I wouldn't be a police officer anymore. Like immediately I was alienated and ostracized. 
because of the action taken against me, nobody wanted to be known to be friends with me, associate with, with me in any way. So nobody would talk to me at all. In the months that followed, like with the constructive dismissal and everything else that they were doing to me, I had other people reaching out to me. So I, I met with somebody outside of work that basically gave me the name of, of a lawyer and said, you need to call this lawyer. And when I did, it was the class action lawyer. And they said, we are putting together a class action lawsuit against your service for the way that they treat their female officers. So I provided them with a bunch of information. And it wasn't until then that, you know, I started making calls to other female officers and saying, if, if you're part of this, I know about it. If you're not, I think you should be. And, you know, we all just started networking that way. But it was all very quiet and behind the scenes because it hadn't been launched yet. I guess it was when it was publicly launched that more people were willing to openly speak about it. But even then, I mean, because of the culture of fear, you still, I mean, there's women that should be coming forward because of the way they're being treated and have confided in me in the way they're being treated, but won't join the lawsuit because they know what it's going to mean for the rest of their career. So even when this class action wraps up, they know that if they're going to stay employed there, they're going to have to still work with the same people that they've accused you know, those people aren't going anywhere. They're not going to lose their jobs. So you're still going to be in that toxic environment. And once this lawsuit's over and done with, you still have all the control in the hands of those senior leaders. They can do whatever they want. So there's a woman, and I'll give you an example. There's a woman in Toronto. They don't have a class action in Toronto, but she filed a human rights complaint. She talked about the way she'd been treated, the things that were said to her and done to her by one of her colleagues. And a month after she filed her application, the chief of Toronto disciplined her internally. And they took, I think, 80 hours out of her vacation bank and they disciplined her for not reporting those incidents sooner. Like you're telling me that's not reprisal, you know, but the chiefs do this to set an example. So they set an example with me. I spoke up about what I saw happening on the inside and boom, I got disciplined right off the bat. This um, sergeant in Toronto, Sergeant Jessica McInnes, she filed her human rights complaint a month later. Boom, she gets disciplined. They take 80 hours out of her vacation pay. So they're setting examples to set the tone for everyone else. You keep your mouth shut or this is what we do to you. You know, and it doesn't help that every other employee is doing exactly what they're told. They're all keeping their mouth shut. They don't want to say they know this is going on. So now, you know, you have myself as a whistleblower who's standing all alone because nobody else wants to say, I know this is happening. You know, and I'll give an example. My boss at the time when I was still working she pulled me into her office and she said, listen, I have to confide in you that I know that what you're saying is true. And she told me that she had been assigned to do an internal investigation against a member. And she was told it's, it's a domestic incident or domestic occurrence. We want you to investigate it. She did the investigation. She reported back and said, I've done the investigation, but there's no grounds for any criminal charges. And she was told, no, you're going to arrest him. We want him arrested. And she said, well, there's no grounds to arrest him, so I'm not going to be the one that arrests him. They just went and found two other investigators who were willing to, to go and arrest the guy. Because most people know that an internal investigation is a ticket to promotion. So if you're given an internal investigation and you're told to, to provide a certain outcome, if you do it, it's going to be favorable for your career. In her case, she refused to do it. And what made me sad was that that was her justification you know, she her she was morally justified in what she did, because in her mind, she wasn't the officer that arrested him. So it was OK. You know, and I couldn't I couldn't wrap my head around the fact that th this person was still arrested. It still ruined his life. You know, he ended up resigning from employment after he was put through the criminal trial process and he moved to another province. I mean, he doesn't even live here anymore. And this was all because somebody at the service wanted him arrested. It wasn't a matter of what he had done or the outcome of a valid investigation. It was just that they wanted him gone. And that's what blows my mind is that you have people in senior positions. I mean, this particular boss of mine has since been promoted to, an, to a higher rank. You have people like her who have justified their actions throughout their career because, you know, it wasn't her that did the unethical act. It was someone else. But when you put all these people together that know that these things are happening, all the people that were involved in these investigations that I highlighted, they all know what's going on. And they're all they're basically being bribed to keep their mouths shut because they get their paycheck every two weeks. They're very good paychecks. The potential for earning income by, you know, staying there for the 20 so years, 
you know, getting promotions along the way. I mean, there's a lot at risk if you if you decide to speak up. You know, sometimes it's really hard for people to make that tough call if they feel like they don't have any other option um, career-wise, Well, and that's, that's just it. I mean, yeah. we have these people. When you look at the senior leaders serving today, most of them were hired into this profession with nothing but high school. Yeah. So, you know, I'm sure throughout their careers, they've improved their education. But had it not been for this job, what, where else would they work where they could make the money they're making? You know, most chiefs and police, most chief of police in Ontario are making over $200,000 a year and some are over 300000 That's more than the premier of Ontario. So where else could these people work and make that kind of money? You know, they have no choice but to do everything they possibly can to maintain their employment. And that's why I say, I mean, when these examples are made of people like myself for Jessica McInnes in Toronto, it is so imperative that our government come down on the people that are punishing us because not doing that allows the culture of fear to flourish. And that's exactly what we have happening here. And I have shared my story with the Ontario legislature. And, you know, I I, I guess I had a, a naive, you know, belief in the back of my mind that they would care and they would do something about it. But to date, nobody has. They're just allowing this to perpetuate, which means... Really, regardless of what's going on behind closed doors, nobody's ever going to speak about it because they know what they have to lose. Well, how do you think um, Ontario, how do you think it compares to the other provinces and to the United States and how their police forces are managed? Well, in the United States, I mean, you have people in positions of oversight, like inspector generals who, you know, it is their job to get in and do these internal investigations of corruption. Um, I mean, you could probably date it back to the 70s when the NYPD was so corrupt and, you know, a lot of things had to happen for that to be unraveled. Here in Canada, it's like we're so naive. We want to think there's no chance it could be happening here. I know in Quebec, I mean, Montreal is really the first city police service that is experiencing the kinds of issues I highlighted in my book. So Montreal was actually a case that I did put in my book, but the whistleblowers in Montreal came out in about 2012 And a lot of the allegations that I made are similar to the allegations that these two inspectors in Montreal made. It was all around internal investigations and the corrupt practices that were exercised in order to arrest some people but sweep other allegations under the rug. So that was 2012, and it was only last year, five years after they first reported this, that the chief of police was suspended. He was taken out of his job. And the, the province came in and took it over. And now they're doing a full review of everything in internal affairs. And we're probably going to see a lot of corruption allegations coming out as a result of that review, because they're finally looking into all those allegations that were made. So I, I look at it and think, well, maybe, maybe in my case, it's going to be a five-year delay before people take my allegations seriously. Maybe in five years, they're going to look at Waterloo Regional Police you know, do a full review of their internal affairs and find out that it's a mess and has been a mess for years. What about the other police forces that in British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba? Um, it's just hard for me because I don't, I don't know what's going on, right? And, and when you have a culture of fear, which exists everywhere, the only information you get is what reaches the media. But I know from experience that what the media publish is, it's all given to them by the chief of police. So, but, but have you, know, you not found that people have come to you confidentially and shared stuff going on with their, within their force? Because yeah, so that's what I was going to say next was, you know, aside from being on the outside, when I went public and my information was public, I mean, I, I haven't had any media extend across Canada, so it's just been through social media. But the people that have read about my story across Canada have all said that it's happening everywhere. And even RCMP and even OPP, it's not only city police services, it's just policing in general, because you have this paramilitary structure, and those at the top think they're untouchable because they have been for so long. What is your opinion on how the police handle the public? Because a lot of your focus is police within police, the internal culture of policing. Um, well, there's two two issues that you have to think about is there's the individual officer themselves, what kind of person they are. So then you can look at what, what kind of person are we hiring? I mean, things will get better. We're starting to only hire those that have a college or university education. That never used to be the case. All you had to have was high school. We're going to start to see better recruits coming through. Um, but then you have the other aspect of the culture and how the culture 
changes people. So I'll give you an example. And this comes up, you know, I've attended enough review sessions around Ontario that Justice Michael Tullock has put on. His first one was all about police oversight, but now he's doing one about carding. But when you talk to people in the public, you everybody seems to have a common understanding that when you have one officer on their own dealing with a member of the public, they're going to fall back mostly on the kind of person that they are. So if they act respectful and courteous, it's because that's who they are. If they're a jerk, then it's probably who they are. But when you get two, three officers together, they'll behave differently. Even if it was that courteous, respectful officer, when you put him with two or three of his colleagues that now he's he's trying to impress, he wants to blend in, he wants to be one of the guys, that's when you start getting that whole thin blue line aspect where, you know, everybody's going to have each other's back. If one person does something, he's going to expect that his, his buddies are going to agree with him and, and write their notes accordingly and testify accordingly. You know, so you ha- you start to get this like groupthink mentality where everybody wants to keep everybody around them happy. Because if you piss off a guy you're going to have to work with the next shift, you know, you never know what's going to happen. You never know if he's the one responding to your emergency call. Is he going to go there quickly or is he going to slow down? Or is he going to step in and help you when you're getting beat up? Or is he going to stand and watch? You know, when you're talking about people being in a position where they can help you survive in a dangerous situation or not, you're going to start to change how you think about things. You know, someone who might, someone who might not tolerate certain conduct probably would if they know that that person is the one that's going to have their back the next shift. So all of those things contribute to the culture. But you're definitely being treated differently by a police officer, depending on whether that officer is alone or whether they're with other people or how they're perceiving you. It's only as good as the cop that comes to your aid, right? I mean, that's yeah. a reality, right? Like, if a good cop comes to my aid, I have a much better chance. Yeah. So there's a lot of people, you know, you get a lot of people that say, I have no issues with cops. I've only ever dealt with the police officer once and he was great or she was great. And that's fantastic, you know, and, and that you need to hear more of those stories. But when you hear the stories of, you know, I was treated like crap. This person didn't respect me. They they yelled at me. You know, I used to always think, well, that person's exaggerating. But now when you see webcam videos out there or sorry, body cam videos and cell phone videos, I mean, you see enough incidents to know that there are cops out there that just don't deal with the public well at all. Yeah, no, or, I, I've definitely experienced that working with the teens at risk who complain about the cops and say the cops treat them badly. And I used to always think that they were exaggerating until I went out to the streets. And I couldn't believe how some police officers treated teens on the street and how obviously sexual they were, like inappropriate. And yeah. then I would hear stories of officers raping streetwalkers or raping a stripper. And you think, oh, I used to never be able to believe it. But then you meet these people and I hear their stories and they have no reason to lie about that. Yeah, and it's really hard to keep denying it when you know that there are cases where it has happened. A lot of people want to just keep denying it simply because they are police and there's no way this could be true. Um, I shared an article on Twitter last week. It was about Maria Campbell's book that she had written that I guess there was a version that never got released, but it was located in a, in a library, I think in Halifax. There were some chapters that she had written in the book. It was a 1973 book called Half Breed. Someone found it. Oh, it was in uh, McMaster University. There was an archive copy. And there were chapters in there about how RCMP officers used to come to her home and rape her when she was a young girl. And it was suggested at the time that those chapters not make it to the final edit. You hear stuff like this and you can't keep denying that it's happened. You can't keep saying, yeah, I no. Agree. I've observed it. I've actually observed behavior like that. Yeah. Um, because when I go onto the streets, I could just be anyone. They don't realize that perhaps I have an education. I can understand what I see. They can't kind of bully right. me. And it yeah. is very intimidating because, you know, I have yet when I've been out there, I know this sounds... I feel so bad even saying this. I have yet to meet an officer, maybe one or two, that I had a connection with or I liked. I found them very stone cold. Yeah, that's not unusual. You know, I want to like police officers. I really do. I want to, you know, I understand how hard their job is. I don't want their job. I would never want to do their job. I think sometimes that they're put under too much of a microscope. But in my experiences... I have yet to experience a really positive one. 
Yeah. And I think, so I think if you go back to like, how do we change this? Because I've had a lot of people saying, how do you change the culture? Well, I think part of the problem is, I think, number one, you don't have an impartial and independent body who's overseeing the conduct of these police officers. So you have the way the province has set it up. They've set up three separate bodies, which I think is a huge waste of taxpayer money. These three bodies are the ones that investigate police, but they investigate them for different things. And it depends on who's making the complaint. It makes no sense. I mean, you really have to have one independent body so that anytime someone's not happy with the conduct of a police officer, it's it's investigated by this independent bar, um, independent body. Because as it stands now, you know, if you're not happy with the way you were treated, you call the division where the officer works and you say, I want to make a complaint. And you get that person's supervisor or one of the supervisors and, you know, the person you're getting on the other end of the phone is going to be exactly like the person you dealt with on the road. You know, that supervisor mentored the person that you had on the road. They, they are the older generation that brought up the new generation of police. So when, when you have an issue, and what I'm saying is the issue is who's at the top. So when that is the issue, when you have these people who have been on the job 20 to 30 years who are nearing retirement, but they're high school educated, they got into the profession, they've always been a, a cop's cop, a guy's guy, you know, you still have the old boys club. That's who you're talking to on the other end of the phone. So when you say this is what happened to me, they treated me without respect, they were yelling at me, you have someone who's going, yep, okay, all right, well, what do you want done about it? Okay. And then at best, that officer might get a slap on the wrist. So you don't ever have any bad behavior being corrected. You have perpetuated um, negative culture. You know, you have these people that continue to be the way they are and, and they're never held accountable for it. If you had an independent body investigating this, you'd have people actually being held to account and, you know, disciplined accordingly, however you need to do it to try to change behaviors. That's the only way to correct the people who are already there. If I see something that I think is inappropriate, what, how do I handle that? What do I do with that information? Well, that's the thing. I mean, there is this provincial body that you can call. But if you did, if you called them and you said, this is what I saw, I want that person investigated, they're going to say, well, did you speak to the service about it? Yeah. And when you say, well, no, I'm coming straight to you, they're going to say, well, we recommend that you call the service and give them an opportunity to deal with it. So now you're right back to square yeah, one. Yeah, right back. So, that doesn't, so the best route that people have is what they're doing is they use social media. Yeah, I think so. And then, and then that's difficult because it can be manipulated. So, you know, someone could post a cell phone video from one angle yeah. and then someone could post it from another angle and one looks totally different. Yes. So now you have people that even if there's a video there showing the person being completely disrespectful, you're still going to have people playing devil's advocate saying, well, I don't know if that's really what happened. So, I mean, it's really hard yeah. to expose the truth. And when you look at my case, I mean, I exposed what I believed was the truth, and that was based on my gathering of evidence. Nobody, how many people actually took what I said and believed what I said? You know, even at the Ontario legislature, they looked at me like, this is a bit too, too crazy. You know, we have a hard time believing this because all this is just a bit too crazy that you could do this and then your chief would discipline you like this. They still have a hard time believing that what actually happened, happened because of who it is, right? Because of the status and the authority that these people hold. Carla, how'd you make the decision to do an episode with Kelly Donovan? Well, I've been wanting to do an episode about this for a while because I've had um, lots of experiences with different people that have talked to me about how the police have interacted with them, which is completely unethical. But I didn't really know how to go about it because I didn't want to be talking about rumors or hearsay. And so when I met Kelly's sister through hockey, we played hockey together and she mentioned Kelly, I just thought it was, you know, an interesting, more researched approach to telling the issues that are going on in the police force. And it sounded like when we were listening to Kelly speak that she had to deal with a lot of rumors and hearsay, probably about 60-70% of what she had, but and she was really only working with about 30% of true evidence when she has to make a presentation or when she has to bring all this forward. It's pretty tough for her. I mean, you need a lot of evidence to go up against somebody like a police person. You really do. I mean, I have met with people personally that have shared their experiences with me, but if they have no proof, if they did not lodge a complaint, then forget it. You know, one instance is I was working with a teen that was living in a homeless shelter, and she had said that 
a police officer had assaulted her sexually. And she had gone to the sexual assault center. She had lodged a complaint. They had gone to the police station. They had uh, done all, all the, you know, everything required. Then she was obviously really scared afterwards and uncomfortable. And then it happened again. And the assault center went back to the police station and they had lost all the paperwork on the first complaint. And that's just, that just tells you they protect their own. And I, I, I have seen this police officer and he's actually super good looking. Like, it's not like he's some unattractive that would need to go after somebody that's underage living in a homeless shelter. You know, it's a, it's a power trip. It's some type of deviant behavior he has. I don't know what it is. But, you know, he has scared this girl, scared her completely off. And now she's basically in hiding because she cannot trust the police. I get the feeling it's really, really early innings for Kelly with her mission. I mean, she's been at it now for a couple of years and she's taken some steps. But if it were a baseball game that she's involved in right now, she's just in the first or second inning of what she needs to accomplish. Well, and she's kind of taking it from a different aspect. So the story I told is a consumer complaint. She's really talking about um, what happens internally. So once once that complaint goes through, who are the officers that decide to lose the paperwork? And that was her issues of all the corruption within to, to not only protect police officers from, uh, you know, like public complaints, but also how to protect police officers from even internal issues going on. You know, and, and one of her big things is all the domestic abuse that happens with police officers and their spouses, and none of it gets reported. Because police officers, you know, of course, they have, they, their work is so stressful. And so they don't always come home in the best mood, and some of them take it out on their spouse or their kids. But there's really not an easy way for that spouse to lodge a complaint without some backlash. And that's, you know, there's also a lot of divorces within the police force. And a lot of the spouses will say they don't like to complain. They don't want to create any issues because they don't want that to come back and haunt them. The Stand Up Speak Up podcast is made in Canada. Produced and hosted by Carla Stevens Tolstoy. Your guest host this week was Matt Kundal. Copyright 2018. Find us online at StandUpSpeakUpApparel.com. If you have a moment, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Stand Up, Speak Up. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.